This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Zupan's where right now it's veal and lamb time. Nice. So this weekend, which would be coming up right after Halloween, is mm-hmm. that right? Yep. Um, enjoy 25% off all veal and lamb. I wish I would have known that. We we got some veal and beef and made some bolognese sauce. Hey, just go back. Yeah, no, but uh, now there's a reason to go. But right. I also have some left over, mm-hmm. so I've already got it. So delicious, by the way. I had a great opportunity to do an event with John Eisenhart, who is the chef at Zupan's. Yeah. We did a Wildwood reunion. Oh, nice. A few days ago. Yeah. And he provided salad. Zupan's provided the wine and the flowers. And and that. And so what was fun was people like Corey Schreiber and mm-hmm. Scott Dolich, who, you know, storied chefs in Portland, yeah. all got up and just acknowledged John being there. And they said, we eat more of John's food than anybody else's because they're all shopping at Zupan's. They're right. busy people. What's, and you know, what's even uh, great, you talk about the the veal and the lamb. You can go to Zupan's.com and they've got recipes. You might be saying to yourself, what do I, I, I've never dealt with this before. Zupan's.com will have some recipes for you. To right. Use. To use lamb and veal raised in the USA. Yep. So, uh, right. They have all the recipes there too. And if you subscribe to the news feed, you'll also, you can use that. Lamb and veal. Oh, yeah. Uh, with some of their marinara sp- sauce, which you can get free. That's a sneak peek next week. The 15th and the 17th. So it's right. in a couple of weeks. So this sneak is peek. plenty of time. There's no excuse for you not to get on that uh, list. Exactly. The That's the list. whole idea because yeah. they always have something. Yeah. And then Thanksgiving coming up, Court? Oh, yeah. November 1st is when you can start placing your orders. I've been doing this for the past three years. There's no better way to prepare uh, Thanksgiving dinner than actually to let Zupans prepare it for you. Right. And it makes you... A better husband and father, oh, yeah. right yeah. off the bat. Yeah, you got turkey, you got sides, pies, <laughs> um, and you can uh, just go in there. And they're, they're, in fact, there's a sampling session. It's a holiday tasting event, Saturday, November 9th, um, uh, Taste of Thanksgiving from 11 to 3 p.m., where you can go and sample this stuff and then order it. That's your lunch. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to lot to sample there. Zupans at uh, West Burnside. Yep. McAdam. Mm-hmm. Lake Oswego. And where else, Court? Zupians.com. Here we are, time once again, Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork and fresh off the boat. Well, actually, you took a plane back from Europe. Well, I was on a boat at one point. I went from Copenhagen to uh, Oslo Yeah, on a boat, which was just an awesome little experience. I think a lot of our listeners probably already follow along on Portland Food Adventures on uh, Instagram. What is yeah. it? Portland Food ADV? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, you were... you. You did some travels there, man. Right. And I, you know, I don't have so much patience with uh, social media. I need to get better at stories. Yeah. Which is not there yet. But now I realize they changed the algorithm. Right. So so stories stand out and and nothing else does. Yeah. Nothing else does. So anyway, you know, my Instagram feed is a mixture of food, dogs, manzanita, and some travel. Yeah. So the last month was pretty cool. I went a lot of places. Yeah. I got to drive a... A little Mercedes convertible on the Autobahn. Nice. That was a lot of fun. What was your top speed? I didn't go. I didn't get you didn't go crazy? going that fast. Not only that, but it's all in kilometers per hour. I was going to say, so, just say it in kilometers. It yeah, sounds bigger. Yeah. So hundred. It, it was up around one thirty, I think, or one forty. Okay. But I, I wasn't trying to go. I'm usually yeah. someone who wants so to I'm, try to go fast. I'm going to do the quick equation there. One thirty kilometers is it's probably like about well, one sixty is hundred. Oh right, right, right. So you were probably about eighty. 
Oh no, at I went faster than that. I went, so maybe then you I got up, up to one sixty. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I I've done you know hundred yeah. plus in and Oregon roads. Nobody <laughs> what? Knows. No, but that was years ago. Sure, right. Years ago, years yeah. ago when I had the Infinity. Sure. That was, that was that. Anyway, that's Chris Angeles' Portland Food Adventures. Oh, my God. We just got That was the longest now. intro ever. Yeah, Court Johnson from Kink.fm hey. over here, yeah. but also from lots of other places. You're not all about your work. Sure. No, I uh, installed a new faucet in my basement. There you go, so. which I didn't do and I couldn't do, so I commend you for that. It took about three trips to the five different, uh, you know- Different uh, hardware stores in my neighborhood. Oh. You do the math. I don't know how that works. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> Quickly, I have a friend who built a cabin in Goldendale. Yes. From scratch, mm-hmm. and it's like 3,500 square feet. There's no Home Depot near there. You had to have everything set right. to go up There's there no every trip. weekend to do it. So anyway, yeah. shout out to Scott Brock. He's awesome. And um, but uh, and anyway, I'm just. I hope it doesn't show in this episode with Ryan Harms from Union Wine Company, but. I just yesterday, I think, got over my jet lag for the trip, and I thought I was kind of immune to jet lag. Oh no! I no, when you spend that amount, of, you were you were gone for a good almost a month. Yeah, but I thought the first day I was fine. Yeah, and I'm usually I don't sleep. I don't have great sleep anyway. Right. So I'm used to being a little tired. But oh god, around Friday, You're, was it tough. Just hit so, you. so um, th- thankfully, Ryan was a great interview that everyone's going to listen to now so uh it was lively and he kept it moving yeah it's not always the case no, normally that's know. our job right to keep it moving but he kept it moving and he kept me uh on, on the edge of my seat so to speak and uh that was good to have happen today but ryan so uh we didn't know ryan before this he owns and started union wine company he mm-hmm. came here uh, years ago, because the wine industry interested in him after he decided he really didn't like the food industry or the medical industry uh, and came out to Portland and started kind of staging, so to speak, at wineries, mm-hmm. our vineyards, and um, started Un- Union Wine Company years ago. And you may know him as the uh, Union Wine Company as the producers of Underwood wine, which is wine in a can. Right. Yeah. So uh, I find that very interesting, and I think they're still learning and grow. They're growing and they're learning at the same. time. Well, I think time. they have to get over the just the stigma of wine. Like a lot of it's what they're learning, and also what the marketplace is learning. Right, but get over the fact that it's coming out of a can. Well, here's the thing: there might be a stigma with you and me and people our age, right? But there's not necessarily a stigma with younger. Right. Folks, which is generally what he cites. That's his, as, sure. That's most of. That's his target. That well, it's not not really his target, but that's who he thinks is consuming a lot of the wine. And then right. active people going out, it's much easier to carry cans of wine if you're that into wine that you have to have your wine on a hike. Right. Uh, it's much easier there's to no, carry cans. Not a big risk of that thing breaking in your backpack. Right. And then there's the issue, which I found I found it very interesting. That um, you know the the can of wine is about is half the volume of a bottle, mm-hmm. so therefore it's a little lower price point. Oh sure, to yeah. Have wine yeah. in your hand, yeah. than it is investing in a bottle. So, um, really bright guy with a family spanning uh, three weeks to fourteen years. So I found that part of his life interesting. Yeah. Um, you and I both as fa- as fathers like to hear how that balance is going and what you learn. Right. Uh, so it was interesting to um, interview Ryan and, uh, you know, kick off the holiday season. 
There we go. This hits on no, 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 the date, right before the, Halloween. The, well, Halloween. Do you consider Halloween a holiday? It's yes, the start it? of the holiday season. Okay. I, I I do. I I decorate more for Halloween than I do for Christmas. I think we'll wait till 2020 for me to go into my Halloween rant. All right, I won't bother. We'll save that for next right now. But something to look forward. Now that's a big tease. That's the long tease let's right do there. Let's do a whole show on everything that I want to rant about. Sure. Okay. Um, and then we can get my girlfriend in here. How much, them all. She how can much, just tick off the subject. So oh, she'll, she'll do the rapid fire, name the subject, and just let you go. <laughs> let's go. Man, how much time should I allot for that? Uh, I think it could be an episode oh, okay. easily. All right. uh, I can find a lot. Drivers. You know, we got drivers sure. and whole things. So. At any rate, let's get back to the business at hand here. Ryan Harms, Union Wine Company. Enjoy. Right at the Fork is proud to be supported by Zupan's Markets. For over 40 years, unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to the freshest baked goods, flowers, and more, with a delicious emphasis on locally sourced items. The best of the Northwest Bounty can be found at your closest Zupans on West Burnside, McAdam, or Lake Grove. And at Zupans.com, eat well, put taste first, love your food. By Ringside Steakhouse. Owned by the Peterson family for generations, Ringside Steakhouse has long been a landmark of the Portland landscape, featuring impeccable service that has set the standard for nearly 75 years. Enjoy the finest aged steaks, their world-famous onion rings, and even Ringside's legendary late-night happy hour. Whether it's a special occasion, a business dinner, or just a great night out, make a reservation at ringsidesteakhouse.com today. What's uh, parl- what's Parliament? Oh, it's a local creative. Uh, I guess they'd probably call themselves a creative agency. Oh, yeah, free swag from somebody. Oh, good. It's it looks good. Yeah, I would hope they you know they design things. So. That's that's the whole idea. There's <laughs> one firm in town that I will shall remain nameless if I could actually remember the name. That it seems like everything they produce looks the same for every client. Yeah. Yeah. I know who it is. I remember them, but <laughs> so I used to be in that business. Yeah, right. So I just I can't imagine producing the same look. For, but that may be how they generate business. That's the look that people want. Yeah, so they, I want that look, so I go to them. Yeah. So is, so is that uh, what brought you out west? Uh, no, what brought me out west was this beautiful place. Well, so did you want to interview me? Let's do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't talk much about wine, but that that's what you're here for. So we'll defer back to you. No, what brought me out west was, um, anybody who listens to this podcast has probably heard this a couple of times, but I uh, was self-employed, and I had an ad agency, so I was able to work on my own, and I took two cross-country trips uh, going to every major league, most all major league baseball parks with my two sons over two summers, and I landed in Bandon, Oregon, and I had an epiphany at about 10.30 in the morning on a beautiful July day and said, you know, we could move out here. I had an unusual situation where my, the kid's mother wasn't in touch with us. So okay. I'm one of the few people who could move across the country without asking right, anybody right, right. And getting permission. So I loved it. And, um, and I fell in love with the coast first. And then I saw Portland three days later and I said, oh no, that I could do. And that would be really cool. And, but I always had the coast in my heart. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm sort of splitting time now between Manzanine and Portland. I have a place out there. Very nice. I live. So what brought you out here? More importantly. Yeah, the wine business. Um, so I was in college in 1997. 
and that was a big year for, in my life so it's a good milestone it's 22 years ago so that's yeah and it was uh, a point i was a uh, see i would have been a so- finishing my sophomore year and i was trying to figure out where life was going to go of course now looking back to think in your sophomore year of college that you had any clue what you were going to be doing i i was you know you could you could mark every decade 20 30 40 50 i think i finally found just fell into things so you still have some time, but you've got a, a viable business too that you're going to Yeah, plan. And, and I guess in the end, I feel like fortunate that I fell into something pretty early on at that point. But I, w- I thought I wanted to be going to medicine. And after uh, organic chemistry, uh, absolutely kicking my butt, I realized that uh, that wasn't going to happen. And so I started kind of opening my mind to some opportunities. And I was curious about the wine business. And so... Uh, I had reached out to Lynn Penner-Ash, uh, who now is Penner-Ash Wines, and she, I kind of joke with her that I think she was trying to get rid of me, that she was like, hey, you should work a vintage. Like, stop asking me questions, kid. Get off my email. Um, you should work a vintage, and that's how you should figure out whether you are interested in, in getting into the wine game. And so I'm like, great, you just opened the door. I want to give me a job. And so I just... Uh, was persistent with her and eventually she gave me an opportunity to come to Rex Hill in 1997 and work harvest. And to a degree, the rest is kind of history. I fell in love, you know, similar to you, I fell in love with this place. Uh, it was just beautiful. I have West coast family, but I'd never been to the Pacific Northwest. And same with me. I always knew I'd love it and I'd never been here. Yeah. So So it's been, uh, since 2001 full time Mm -hmm. and it's been a pretty awesome ride. And um, what was it about the wine industry that interested you? Because I wasn't, so we were joking the other day at uh, dinner, a bunch of us were there. When I was in college, and it goes way further back than you, but I mean, it was like Blue Nun and Matus Rosé. There was no, you know, Mondavi was probably around. Sure. But I mean, we were just not even aware of wine. And so you were there 20 years later. Yep. Maybe a little less, but... What was it that piqued your interest? Well, I think, so, um, now my ex-wife, but uh, my girlfriend at the time in high school, we were high school sweethearts, uh, she, her family was super into food and wine. Uh, her dad actually studied medicine in Bologna, Italy, and I think they left there just kind of enamored with Italian culture. And and so getting to be around that family, food and wine was a big part of their lifestyle. and. I definitely gravitated towards it. I loved hearing the stories about a bottle of wine that he was opening. I uh, enjoyed tasting and trying to learn more about, uh, you know, the attributes or what this particular varietal was. And, and it just caused me to kind of dive in deep, uh, start reading, you know, win opportunities. You know, I wasn't of age at that point. So, you know, opportunities to just taste and learn a little bit. And I was definitely very inquisitive around it. Uh, I'm sure also there was a little bit of, the romantic notion of, you know, oh, you could be working in the vines and working in a cellar. And and so I, I think as a kid at that point, uh, there was something probably romantic, ro- romantically appealing about the business that um, was attractive as well. Is it as romantic as you thought? There there definitely is. I think you realize uh, that some of the romance is different. You know, it's, it's different than the glossy magazines that would have been of that era of the advertising that existed. It's different than kind of the idea of you're spending your day, you know, just tasting barrels. And in that first vintage was very 
uh, illustrative of of the business. You know, you spend a ton of time cleaning. You spend a ton of time, you know, just keeping everything organized. Um, and it, if anything, I think you start to realize the repetition of certain jobs. There's almost like a zen like aspect of it. And and I think if you don't appreciate some of that, like I can't imagine being in this business because it's not as crazy as like brewing in terms of some of the sanitary practices, but you know, cleanliness is an important piece of the business and you spend a lot of time doing that. How much of your time do you actually spend in nature? Because well, that's what every wine discussion is about the soil and you know, how, how climate affects it. And I'm, uh, that sounds romantic to most, but how much of your time do you actually? Yes. Yeah, and so through my career, that's changed. Um, early in my career, I spent a lot of time uh, working for Berkshire Wines was much more out in the vineyard. And uh, I think you learn quickly in this business. And I think in particular in Oregon and in the North Willamette Valley, farming is so critical to, and the quality of farming and the attention to the details is so critically important to the end product. And so very early in my career, the experience that I got was really focusing on that side of the business. And I managed some small vineyards and uh, had a point in my life early in my career where I spent a lot of time out in vineyards. And, and that is romantic. I, I, can, I can certainly look back at some points and be sitting on top of a John Deere tractor out in a vineyard and you're watching the sun come up and you're seeing, you know, different mountain peaks from around Oregon and even up into Washington. And I mean, those are pretty magical moments while you're sitting there, you know, flail mowing a a vineyard or something. Mm -hmm. Well, just to know that that's part of the the whole process. And then for someone like you who came from the Midwest and the East coast, there's this, there's this Pacific Northwest magic that I experience all the time. Yep. And I don't know if you felt that, feel this way, but the one uh, thing that makes this so unique here is I, you know, I'm 61 years old. I never in, I live some nice places. I never felt a relationship with geography the way I do in Oregon. Like, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend for a long time. And at one point I said, you know what, this might be why, because I, because I enjoy being with, all these different places in Oregon with my dog and I'm mm-hmm. all, all so happy. Do you have those epif- those moments too, where you're just thinking this is, this is wonderful? Well, I can't say that it's inhibited me from having a girlfriend or having relationships. Well, like I don't want to like go into all of yeah. that, but <laughs> I think well, some of that is a little justification too, but I did, but I was very happy with Oregon. I mean, it you know, made me very happy. No, I, I, I absolutely would agree with that. I'm, I think, for me, I li- so I've always lived in Portland and then worked out in wine country. And I think the thing that always blew me away is how quickly you could take a right-hand turn off the highway going out to wine country and you would be in the country. And you can so quickly find nature and be in nature here. And really in a way that's like, you know, if you didn't know your way around, you could be lost out in the woods pretty easy. That I love. And I think you know, whether it's a long walk or doing workout in the vines to even just taking a drive. Uh, I had this conversation actually this morning with one of my employees who was coming back from the coast and they missed a turn and it was going to add 20 minutes. And he and his wife were discussing whether they should turn around and they like, it's gorgeous. Like, why would we, let's just enjoy the day. And I think that's something that is, I'm sure that exists in other parts of the country, but I definitely feel that here. It's, um, 
Yeah, I've done that so many times. Wrong turn. Oh, no, I'll just go with it. And now I take long routes all the time. And it's kind of crazy, but I, it, it's so enjoyable. And then I have a friend who's got a plane. And we used to meet at Troutdale and say, where do you want to go today? And so he and I would marvel. He was from the East Coast also, grew up there. Um, this is the only place where you get on a plane and go and see the beautiful coast and come up and circle Mount St. Helens and yeah, you know, just and then go over Portland, go over city. It was just, just gorgeous. That's so, awesome. That's probably such a unique uh, perspective as well. Yeah, to, and to all do it in a couple of hours, mm-hmm. show up at three o'clock and be back by sunset. Yeah, pretty cool. So it, you don't have to go very far. Yeah, to see so much. So let's talk a little bit uh, about wine. And I think I told you I'm not. Um, I've been around wine a lot, but I'm not a big wine drinker. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy it at times, but it's not something that comes naturally to me. So you may have to guide me a little in this conversation. But I'm familiar enough with what's going on in the Willamette Valley and sure. everything. But you're doing something very different, of course, than most everyone else or just about everybody else. Yeah. What was the impetus to put wine in a can? So, and it, I probably almost would back up even before we got to that point. I think when I started Union in 2005 and we acquire, acquired the Kings Ridge brand, um, I was the winemaker at a winery called Rex Hill. Mm-hmm. And I was basically moonlighting and making wine in kind of the excess capacity of the winery there. And in 2005, there were a handful of brands that were really focused on uh, delivering value, say under $20 to kind of put something around that uh, for Oregon Pinot or Willamette Valley Pinot, whatever it might be. And when I first came to Oregon, I, I expected that I'd be working the vines Maybe the dream someday would be small vineyard, small winery, and I'd be doing everything myself and have this very lifestyle business. And I think as I got into the business more and I was working very much for wineries that would kind of fit that model, I realized that when I'd go back east, very few wines that I'd be excited about drinking here were showing up there. The selection was just much smaller and everything was fairly expensive. And and I think as a 20 something year old kid at that point, your, your pocketbook, even though you're in the industry, you're not spending, you know, $40, $50 on a bottle of wine to drink at night. And so I realized that there was a reason why Oregon didn't have brands that were focused on providing, you know, value proposition, uh, wine. And I kind of took that on as like, well, there's gotta be a way to solve that. How do we solve that? And that really was kind of the genesis of Union Wine Company, and trying to have a brand that was and and wines that were at the price points intentionally, not just like, oh, I made too much or it was a big vintage and so we're discounting a little bit and the consumer's winning. Like we, we kind of staked out our position. And so today there's five brands and Underwood is our Oregon proposition. So we source fruit and we grow fruit all over the state. And in 2014, uh, we introduced commercial wine in a can And that idea goes back to around 2012 when I was reading some stuff and some people were talking about canned wine that was kind of, you know, sporadically, there's a producer in Colorado who is doing a little bit of it, but they didn't sell it outside of basically Denver. And there are some folks in Australia who'd been doing it. And it was just like, wow, this is kind of interesting. Like this fits our mantra and kind of who we are. Um, We're in Portland or in Oregon here where there's so much beer that's, 
going in. And at that time, increasingly, you were beginning to see more and more great local breweries starting to think about cans. And so it just opened the door of a conversation that we had internally. And by 2013, we said, hey, let's find a, a mobile canner who it could get and work with us on this. And so we ended up identifying someone who you know was just crazy enough to kind of jump in and, and give us the opportunity to run a, a small run. And so in the fall of 2013 at the Feast uh, Portland event, we launched uh, Wine in a Can in a uh, t- at that time, it was not for commercial sale, so it was just a 12-ounce can. And it, w- it w- the popularity of it, the interest in it just took off. And how did you know that? Well, certainly just coming out of Feast, there was a lot of media attention. And I like to kind of tell the story that in like early November of that year, we were featured in Fast Company as an innovation story. And, you know, for... Uh, kid who came out here pursuing his dreams, just getting into the fast company and being connected to such an entrepreneurial publication was, you know, one of those moments where you kind of pinch yourself. And by the end of like a two week period, we'd gone from the innovation story to Perez Hilton and like the Hollywood insider talking about wine in a can. So like we'd move from the innovation story to like, you know, Hollywood gossip. And so you're just like, okay, this, this thing has just taken off. And we knew at that point there was enough interest that we just needed to work quickly to to get to a point to have commercial uh, cans available. Mm-hmm. And our business has been is focused on distribution, so it's not the 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 exciting side, so so to speak, of the business, but it's, it's a profitable side. Well, and it's where it's where we've just based our business. It's, I don't less than one percent of our business is done direct to consumer or online. Uh, we've never focused on that. Everything is through the distribution channel, but it's also a way for our products to make it not only around the U.S. but actually, you know, with some export as well. And I had our distribution partners also reaching out in kind of the early part of the winter of 2013, saying, "When can we get this? How do we get this?" Because they saw they saw the market opportunity for it as well. And didn't they have? I have a lot of questions about this because as a someone who came from ad agencies. Did, did you do um, focus groups and did you know beforehand that there was go- going to be demand for this or was it a hunch? Um, so when we first, the, the very first kind of non-commercial run, we probably did about 40 cases of Pinot Noir and 40 cases of Pinot Gris. And quite honestly, I figured after Feast, we'd probably have a bunch of canned wine that we'd all take camping and that would be the end of it. Um I, I certainly had no idea. So there was no focus groups. This was very much, I think, instinct, intuition. Um, and, and maybe in part, too, it was looking at Underwood as a brand and thinking about some of the brand values and what it stands for and really saw in cans the, that a can kind of exemplified the brand. Um, we talk a little bit about pinkies down and you know you're holding on to a 12 ounce can. It's kind of hard to get your pinky in the air. You can't really stick your nose in a can. If you swirl it, you might look kind of silly because you can't right. really see what you're doing. And so I think there is a bunch about uh, cans, just the can itself, that really resonated with us and was an extension of the brand. Um, we also I look at beer culture and think about how many times have have I been drinking a ten dollar six pack. $12 six pack with a bunch of other folks. And you're staying around having a great conversation like this, 
and you're not focused on like, oh, is that strawberry or is that cherry? Like you know, in wine culture, so often it becomes about this like analysis and picking apart. And yet in beer culture, and I know it exists in beer culture, but if you look at a lot of people interacting in beer culture, that doesn't seem to be the central point. They're enjoying it, but- It's not what they're selling on TV. Yeah. And <laughs> then, so I just, I think we kind of looked at even beer culture and said, man, if we could just get, connect to a little bit of that in the way that we think about wine, how great would that be for the wine business? Let's pause here for a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse, which is freshly, what do we call this, Chris? Freshly remodeled? I would, I would say you'd be safe in calling it a remodel. Yeah. And, and a little bit of a, a little bit, of, uh, let's call it enhanced, remodeled and enhanced. Love it. And by enhanced, I'm referring to the menu. So um, they have some new dishes on the menu uh that are pretty great i had the crispy octopus the other day yeah this is the crispy spanish octopus on the uh, starters menu yeah exactly and it also happens to be on the bar menu and so one of the things if anybody is familiar with ringside happy hour which occurs after 9 30 p.m and on sundays from four to five um, yeah sundays from four to five um, Ringside's well known for having, at those hours, one of the best happy hours you can find on the planet. But they've they've always had a happy hour menu with some great bites, priced between like three fifty and six dollars. You can get a hamburger, you can get steak bites, which are everybody knows are fantastic. But they've now taken the bar menu, and during those hours, you can get half price on those that crispy Spanish octopus. You can get the enemy's steak tartare. Uh, jumbo shrimp cocktail, anything on the bar menu, half price during happy hour. So in addition to some new items on their menu, the entrees, check that out. We're not going to read them all out. You just need to go to ringside and check those out yourself. Yeah, and and, and, and part of the uh, enhancement that we were talking about, the sunken bar is now expanded. Right. So it used to be that just Jimmy could fit back there, and everybody knows Jimmy. But mm-hmm. now Jimmy and Andy whom I met at Fish House, and now is over at Ringside Steakhouse. So two, two, they, they can fit two people back there. Your drinks come up faster, and it's twice as cordial as it was before. Very nice. Now, with all these enhancements and the remodel, there are some of those things that you love. They're still there. Monday is prime night, and they have their three-course supper specials. So the things you love still there, and then now more things for you to love. Right, and so Ringside... It's a classic in Portland for now 75 years. The Peterson family has owned it. So, um, you know, Portland's all about the next shiniest thing, but I would l- I like to believe that the restaurants that have stood the test of time are those that should be visited and on the top of everybody's restaurant bucket list. Ringside Steakhouse should be right there. That's right, and it's easy to set up reservations. You just go to their website, ringsidesteakhouse.com. And also, the price point, having been to... Have you been to Bologna, by the way? I was going to ask you. I that. have. So you've experienced that. And drinking wine there, there in Spain, it's so much less expensive than it is in the United States. Yep. Um, so that's, I think that's part of the proposition, right? The cost the cost proposition. You're, not, you're buying a smaller unit. Yep. And it's probably the 
the the the cost of a bottle versus a can is quite different. Yeah, I mean the can is a half bottle of wine. Um, so we we produce uh, primarily a three seventy five ml can, uh, which is just slightly taller than a twelve ounce can. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think a lot of people think about that, and they're like, "Really? That's a half bottle of wine or equivalent in there?" I and, wouldn't think that. Yeah. So it's and so one thing you do have to be careful of because you will consume wine in a can similar to the way you consume other uh, canned products, and so we tend to slurp and take it take it down a little bit faster um but it is uh uh we we approach the pricing as just half of our bottle cost and especially i think in the early days we really wanted to this is premium wine that we're putting in a can and we really wanted to stake out that price point have you done um taste tests where people don't see you must have People want to see what the carrier is? We haven't, we will do stuff internally blind. We haven't orchestrated kind of blind tastings like that on a a public, for the public to look at. We do set up opportunities for people to taste side by side, but obviously it's not blind, so any bias can kind of come in. I still am amazed at the number of times that we do that, that I feel like people are pretty honest with themselves, that they'll look at it and be like, yeah, there's no difference here. Like, same wine, and it's the same wine and bottle that goes in the can. So I think for us, that's also a, was a great way early on. People n- knew the wines or may know the wines from the bottle. And now here it is in can. It's just a different package, but it's the same wine that you trust that's been in bottle. And that was a great way, I think, for people to have some confidence to trial. And you were talking before about distributors asking for it. Well, from a business standpoint, they have the opportunity to go to everyone they're all their suppliers and say hey have you thought about cans were you concerned with that uh and does it matter to be first to market i'm sure that it's come up elsewhere now right you've got competition and oh absolutely yeah yeah i think so there definitely i think is a first mover advantage and that's why there's that term um we've benefited from that and I think we've, I like to believe that we've done a good job too of helping to establish a new category that didn't exist in wine. Uh, That's probably a pinch me moment for me, you know, to actually think about my career and, and know that this really didn't exist as a category. And then we came in and have helped to create it. Last year, uh, Kroger and, and Walmart, you know, basically committed to the category and those are large retailers who don't tend to really be moving on the leading end of trend. And so to see them committing shelf space, which, you know, for them distills down to some kind of revenue per square inch or something along those lines that for them to commit to the category is them saying it actually is a category. It's not a fad. Well, they have the ability to build the category too. Exactly. To, if no one had ever heard of it, there, there it is. They've got the distribution on the shelf. Yep. So. Yeah. So I think for a, for a long time, I think we managed some of it as when's the gig going to be up? Yeah. When's somebody going to be like, ah, this this was cute and this was fun. Um, it's not serious and and the consumers weren't there. And so we were probably cautious about how much we could afford to lose in essence in that. And so we're pretty conservative. Uh, In the early days when we rolled this out, we only put it into a a limited number of markets, probably about 10 markets in the early days. That 
wasn't intentional on our part to kind of play the supply demand game, but in essence it did by limiting the number of markets that could have it. We had a lot more markets that wanted it. We also were fortunate that um, we were continuing to have success with that. And literally at one point we had someone accuse us that as we were running out of stock of certain products that we were just playing kind of a supply demand game. And it's like, oh, you know, I would love to supply you with everything that you could ever want. We we were having challenges of getting cans in time. We were having challenges of producing enough uh, product through the small canning line to be able to keep up with demand. Like we just had legitimate issues and early growing pains. But some of that, uh, even though maybe it had perceived negativity, I think in the at the end of the day actually created more excitement around the category. Um, and that was very good for us in the early going. So, and that was uh, six years ago? Five? Yeah, so two, like spring of 2014 was the uh, launch of the first commercial cans. And so what percentage of your business now is canned versus bottled? So this year, with the year not fully wrapped up, we'll probably be about 55% cans uh, relative to our bottled business. And, and where do you see that going in the next five years? Well, our, our, so our glass business continues to grow and, and it's, you know, by any measure would be healthy growth, but cans have been, you know, big triple digit now coming down to some solid double digit growth. So it's just growing at a faster clip. And I would, I would venture to guess that our business will probably hit the 70% zone uh, cans versus glass here in the next year or so. And who are your drinkers? Who's drinking canned wine? You know, it's, it, this is the part, you know, you asked earlier about um, how much research had been done, what kind of insights did you have? And I think it is one of the hard things about our business where we're not as connected to the consumer uh, because we're not interacting directly with them. You know, my, my customer in essence is a distributor partner. And then I also... You have to rely on them to talk to their the vendors. And then they're only getting to either the grocery store or the the restaurant. And so we're pretty removed from the consumer. I think we, as a company really try to lean in on the consumer to, to be getting that feedback and understand what the consumer, um, how they're reacting, what they like. And we, we are definitely out in the market trying to be there to have that connection, but it's still challenging. So you know, I, for what insights we have, I think you're definitely looking at, uh, you know, kind of the 25-year-old, you know, millennial who is experimenting and trying a lot of different things and cans, that they have a lot of beverage that's coming in can that they enjoy. In the early days, I think we also saw people who were, are, their lives are very much about looking at trend. And so this was a new trendy thing that fit into their world. And so they were kind of the early adopters. They likely may still have cans in their life, but they've moved on to other things. Hopefully, they're not drinking White Claw, but you know, there's something new every minute. Um, and so you have individuals like that who they're the early adopter, but then they're going to be moving. Um, we certainly look at a lot of cans as open the door for an opportunity to take wine where it probably hasn't gone historically before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just as we started off talking about the beauty of where we live. You know, I think there's a lot of people who are taking it on hikes. They're taking it in those kind of outdoor activities where... Way easier to carry, and it's exactly. smaller. So. Smaller, it's lighter. Um, you, you can smash it down and yeah. you know, make it even smaller. 
you're not having to deal with, you know, carrying an empty bottle back. You're not dealing with glass, depending on the situation. So, mm-hmm. you know, cans really open the door for a bunch of very functional moments in your life where you might have want to bring wine, but you chose not to and you brought something else. And that was, I mean, that's part of how we ended up even thinking more about this is my first employee uh, who was hired in 2007, still with the company, he works in sales and he's also an avid outdoors guy. And he goes backcountry skiing with a bunch of buddies every year in Eastern Oregon. And when they come back, I, I laugh because the stories often weren't about like the epic powder or anything like that. He beats telling some crazy story about like resupplying the huts and what it would take. And in those stories, there never was wine. They were always bringing primarily high proof alcohol because they you know, could pack a fair amount of alcohol in a small space. Mm-hmm. Beer would come, but never wine. So now it is. So now, yeah, now we've uh, we've kind of solved our own problem. Yeah. So are you working? So who is solving the problems, and who is identifying things? How big is your company, and are you working with? I mean, I come from a, you know years ago packaged goods background, and nothing was done without lots of research and focus groups. And by the way, those focus groups were a lot of fun with the Seagram. People. <laughs> I can it was, imagine it was pretty crazy. And then later. Um, a little anecdote. I thought of it when we were just when you were just chatting about it. I worked on uh, Iroquois brands, which which produced Champagne, and their research said that I think it was like ninety two percent of Champagne was produced in a paper bag within ten minutes of purchase. There's a product wow. for you. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if that's still the case. I don't even know if Iroquois who owns it. But, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> but I wonder if that has any bearing on. A little slightly different wine drinker that is a little more prone to, you know, a younger demographic that might want to just pound it down faster. Do you think that's a possibility? But I, that doesn't answer the question I was asking you. Who are the brains behind your company other than you? How many people? You can't do everything yourself. Yeah. Um, so today we are 39 uh, employees. Uh, there's a national sales team. Uh, that's composed of eight people, one of them based here, uh, VP of sales out on the East Coast. So I guess at the at the home office, there's about 31 folks. And I can never remember, keep up with the numbers, but it's a significant amount of growth uh, since 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we're the largest, um, largest winery in Oregon. And that's still kind of... Uh, How do you feel about that? That's... A- that's a pretty nice banner to be carrying. Yeah, you know, I think it's given what I when I started out in the business thinking that I wanted to just have this small little winery, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of bizarre to me to th- see exactly how my career trajectory has gone. Um, but I think it is exciting and you know, I th- especially in Portland, I think there is we're always celebrating kind of the small producers, which you know, is part of what I love about this place. And then sometimes I think when people start to have success, we begin to kind of like, eh, we don't need to support them anymore. And I think, or not the even beyond that to bash them. Yeah, you know, because they're they're making money. That's not what this was all about. It was about passion, not money. Yep, the Portland ethos. And I still think you know the same passion that got me up to go to work every day still is there. Have incredibly talented and passionate team around me. And you know, to answer your question, I mean, there's a there's a marketing department today, 
that I I run, which is more by circumstance than uh, probably th- what it should be. But we have four people inside of marketing. Um, most the biggest team is sales and production, and we tap into either free, the freelance community here in Portland. Uh, there's some great, you know, just as you were asking me about Parliament. I mean, there's some great local agencies uh, in this town, and so depending on the projects, we'll we'll tap into some of the talent that's here. And so we really, I think, as a small business, have have leaned and probably spent a little more energy in marketing. It's been something that I, as a small business owner, I think I've loved. Is you know, I'm a winemaker by where I've dedicated most of my years, but as a small business owner, there's points where I've been, you know, CFO. There's points where I've been director of marketing. Uh, there's points where I'm the head toilet scrubber. And, you know, I think that's what I love about entrepreneurship and, and being a part of owning a small business. Not necessarily kind of, scrubbing toilets, but that you're participating in the. Yeah. And it's good to, I think sometimes it's also good to remind, to make sure everyone knows that I'm not too good to be able to do that. I mean, as, mm-hmm. as we've had success and as I, you know, and probably more removed in some respects from the day-to-day, say, winemaking, um, to be able to show up and hop on a forklift and help out the production team for a couple hours uh, to pull some drains and clean some drains, you know, back to cleaning. Um, well, it helps you to know what it takes to get the product out the door and be successful. All absolutely. That. Do you, um, was there anything in your past I, so how do your parents feel? Let me ask this in a couple of different ways. Was there anything in your past that would have said, you know, that guy is going to be the biggest wine producer in the, the hot, one of the hottest wine regions in the country. That's going to be him. Was there anything that, or, or would your classmates go, you know, think, wow, how'd that happen? Yeah, I think, I think more <laughs> the latter. I, I don't think anyone uh, saw me going into wine. Um, you know, my brother now works with me in the business. Um, he comes from a finance background and financial analysis background. And, you know, I think we kind of joke that our family is, you know, Wisconsin dairymen, uh, well drillers, not petroleum, but water wells, and small business owners. I mean, that that's the family background. And both my parents were the first in their families to go to college. Uh, they both started off their careers as teachers and my dad, uh, just actually was recounting the story to my oldest son, um, went back to get his master's because he was sitting there trying to figure out how he was going to feed his family. How big it. is the family? Uh, well now there's, uh, th- three siblings. Um, but in, when my mom was home with me as a baby and he was looking at what he was making as a teacher. He was like, I'm not sure how we're going to make this all work. And so even then now it's too tougher. Yeah. So he went back and got his master's and ended up, uh, working in, uh, managed care and kind of the hospital and, uh, early days of the HMO industry. Are they still in the Midwest? Nope. They're, so I think the funny thing today is, you know, I, I came out, worked my first vintage in 97. Um, my, brother now works in the business and we have some investments in the wine business together that we've done. And I mean, he's definitely in the wine business at this point. My parents retired back to the little town that my dad grew up in, which is in the foothills of the Sierras just outside Yosemite. Hmm. And they, in their retirement, planted a small vineyard on the family property that they had retired back to. 
And I actually have an uncle who, on my mom's side, who has a winery in Paso Robles. In 1997, there wasn't anyone in our family who was even close to the wine business, not working in any function in the wine business. Um, so it is kind of funny in you know, less than a generation, uh, the, uh, the kind of family entrance into this business. Do you think you were the catalyst for all of that? No. Would it have happened had you not gone into the business? I think on, um, for my family, yeah, I'm the catalyst for it. Um, I don't, I, I wouldn't say for my uncle that I would have been the catalyst. Um, I think he was kind of on his own trajectory heading, heading that direction as kind of a retirement project. Is that a big wine region, Paso Robles? I want to ask you a question later, off the record. Gotcha. Because I know somebody, I think, who's in the wine business there, but I don't want to go into something I don't know. Um, but is that a, is that a fairly yeah uh, yeah? There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of acreage planted down there uh, in that area that is feeding a lot of bigger winery programs, and there's a lot of great little producers down down in that area. And so how do you feel about Oregon versus Washington and California? Do you get, do you feel competitive about that or just wishing everybody well? And, and that triggers me to think, to ask you about your experience in Rhode Island versus Oregon because sure. very different places. So I think, I feel like within the wine regions, they all have their places like, you know, wish them well. I, for me, you know, California Pinot is not Oregon Pinot. Washington grows Pinot, but they're not known in any way compared to California for Pinot. Um, if you want cool climate Pinot Noir, this is the place to come uh, in the in the U.S. And I think Oregon's super unique, and we embrace that and we focus on that. Um, and I think that shows in in the quality of the wines and the style of the wines that are from here, the people that are here. Um, so for me, I'm I'm certainly all about supporting Oregon, and it's all over. I mean, we make no bones about we're an Oregon business and the Oregon winery and we produce Oregon products. And, and yet I also know like, Hey, California did a ton to create the premium wine business. So would I be naive to not, you know, think that there's positives in supporting that. And, mm -hmm. and right now I think, you know, there's also even just the domestic wines versus imports. And there's a big tariff that's coming in. I am talking to a lot of people right now who are all of a sudden trying to figure out with some of their uh, French import wines, you know, what they're going to do with the tariffs that have come in. And, and sometimes as a small business owner, I love those wines and I'm I certainly probably aspire. And some of those wines are what got me into the business. And yet now as a small producer, I also want domestic wines to kind of be able to stand up on their own podium and, and have people here in the U S be as excited about, you know, domestic producers as they might uh, some of the import. Well, but, and in the last 20 years or so, that has, uh, domestics have made huge leaps and bounds compared to where they were. Uh, you worked in Rhode Island, so you had told me you're, you had a restaurant gig at, uh, in Providence. Yeah. At El Forno. So yeah. that is almost the opposite of the whole food experience here. I think one of the things that impressed me so much when I got to, Portland and got to know it was how everybody was so supportive mm -hmm. and you could ask a chef or anybody where to go to eat and they would point to the restaurant across the street and say go see in Rhode Island that would at least in New Haven so sure. I, I was around New Haven yeah there's nobody that would say go there or go there it was it was very territorial well so in all honesty my 
my experience there was what it is, and it was probably fairly limited. I didn't spend a bunch of time kind of outside of the restaurant community. As a consumer, as a diner. Yeah, well, well, I guess I did a fair amount of dining. I was thinking about it more when I was working inside the kitchen. It was my restaurant family at El Forno that I would talk to. I wasn't talking with other people working at other restaurants and whether they'd be, you know, pointing Mm. people in different directions, which I totally agree with you here. I mean, the camaraderie amongst people, chefs who basically are competing with each other for all of us as consumers, their attention. I love it. I mean, I I love that they're competitive on one hand, but they're going to each other's restaurants. There's kind of high fives and pats on the back all the time. Uh, And there's definitely a great community around food in this, in this community. Um, El Forno for me and that point in Rhode Island kind of wrapped up, you know, I had worked the fall out here for a wine job. That was awesome. I then went to and studied Italian culture and language in Venice for the spring semester. Mm. Amazing opportunity to go to Bologna. Um, And then that summer I spent working at El Forno, which was a restaurant that I had gone to a number of times and eaten at and the opportunity to, in essence, go in the back door and get to have an opportunity to cook there, um, prep and be a part of that. I loved it. It was an amazing summer for me. I learned a ton. Um, and it also was, I realized that I didn't want to be in the restaurant business. The opportunity to work there was amazing. The culture around that restaurant, uh, George and Joanne who founded it and, and what they had created, uh, was quite magical from my perspective. And, and, you know, I said to you is before farm to table, I think was even a, a thing or a phrase that was used. And I still remember one day waiting for corn to arrive in the middle of the summer and the farmer had waited because he wanted a couple more hours of sun to shine yeah. on the crop before he picked corn to bring it in from a little Compton that day. Could have been a great storyline that he fed us all while we were waiting for our corn so that we could prep. But you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, that's dedication to what you're doing and the product that you're delivering to me at the restaurant. It's, uh, and he, he probably was Italian if he was in <laughs> Rhode Island. And that's, the, that's kind of the Italian ethos, the, the food and wine uh, culture there is so passionate yep and they've been doing it for so many years that no one's gonna no one's gonna fall asleep at the wheel and do things in a lazy way i don't think do you find out here that you talked about food and the camaraderie that exists in the food business same thing in the wine business is everybody very supportive of of one another very much and you know so it's hard it's sometimes hard for me to acknowledge that um, I've now been in the business for quite a while and I'm no longer the young guy. Um, and looking back when I first started, I mean, the camaraderie and kind of the social network that was around wine was very supportive. Nobody, especially in the early days, I mean, I'm sure I had a lot of dumb questions and simple questions that I should have known the answer and to. And you're still young and you were really young there. So a lot of the people who've been in the business have been in the business for a long time. So yep. you're... You're kind of, you were kind of a young gun, and they were, I'm sure they were a little bit standoffish, I would imagine. No, well, I think it was, the, I, what I found was everyone was very willing to share their knowledge. And, you know, I think similar to my comment about uh, Oregon versus Washington or California, uh, I, I, again, would be incredibly naive to not say thank you to 
the early pioneers of this business who started to figure a lot of things out because I've benefited from that. I, I haven't had to make some of the same mistakes that they made just in trying to figure it out because nobody had been there to do it before them. And, and so I think there's a um, great group or community of those kind of early uh, pioneers in the industry that have really done an amazing job of sharing their wealth of knowledge and their time. I mean, there is a number of people who the dedication to uh, Oregon Pinot Camp, which is a trade only event, but in those early days, like it took the community dedicating their time. Nobody was getting paid to create those, uh, create these things. And there's a whole group of folks who put an incredible amount of en- uh, energy into creating a world class uh, trade event that is now. I don't know, and it's like 20th year, I think, uh, here in Oregon. Uh, so I, I think that it has been really good, and I think it continues today. You know, certainly there's way more producers. There's way more competition for shelf space. Uh, everyone can't sell their wine in Portland anymore. It's just not possible. Uh, but I still think when you go out on the road and you run into Oregon or the Willamette Valley trade organizations, you see a group of people really working together to kind of promote the greater good of the industry. Yeah, I think that's just the way it is here. So you mentioned one one son. How many kids do you have? Yeah, so I'm uh, probably a little sleepy. I have a three-week-old baby daughter at home. Wow. And then I have a 10-year-old and a 14, almost 15-year-old. There's a range. Yeah. So, you know, keeping busy. Yeah, I would imagine so. So um, how are you, how's the balance for you, especially right now, but I guess that that would have been a different question three months ago. But how's the balance? How are you balancing out family time? Because um, that's an interesting range. I mean, you got teenage and mm-hmm. the real. What I remember is the the grace period. Yep. Like you know, six to eleven. Yep. And then uh, at the three is you know that's three weeks. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. So. My first, my first two, my two sons uh, are a January and March baby. And one of the things in our business is try to avoid having the harvest baby. Um, and so, you know, there's always kind of jokes about some families who didn't get that right. And then they're dealing with that. <laughs> uh, my wife and I talked a lot about that. And I think it's a credit to my team at the winery that, me having a harvest baby wasn't going to impact uh, wine quality, wasn't going to slow down the the operations there. And so, yeah, life is life is very full right now. Um, I don't know that I would have thought I'd be a dad again. And you, three weeks in, you look at this little thing uh, that you're holding in your arms and, you know, your heart's... Uh, already gone and she's uh she's got she's got me wrapped around her finger so it's it's wonderful my boys uh getting to meet her for the first time you could see kind of leading up to that a little bit of like we're not sure how this is going to impact our world um my oldest son asked whether he was going to lose his bedroom and so you kind of see how they process it and i think same thing for them as soon as they got to actually meet her it was like oh wow this, I have, a, I have a sister, there's a new member of the family. And, um, so yeah, we're, she's no different than any other newborn. She's, you know, sleeping a bunch and not sleeping when maybe you want her to. Um, but it's, it's quite wonderful. That's an interesting experience for you because you not only have the, um, time different, uh, the time span, but boys versus girls are 
Completely yep. different thing. Yep. Completely different issues. I would imagine I only have boys, and I used to be thankful because I raised them myself. I used to be thankful that I I don't know how I would have handled some of the issues with girls or a girl mm-hmm. uh, on my own without a woman there to help. Yeah, well, it'll definitely be a, a new adventure, but I guess I like to kind of think at this point there's a bunch that I've learned, maybe not necessarily about raising a daughter, uh, but raising kids, and um, uh, I'm hopeful that we'll do a good job. Oh, I would imagine you would, and you've got the experience of the, the previous two. It's not like you're kidding. You know, on the first one, you, you're almost clueless, except for the advice you get from parents and a few other people, but... Uh, no, I think I think it'll be with the experience that you have. It's not like you forgot what it was like. No, so. no. And I, now they have much, many more things. Oh. You know, many. You know, all the strollers. You look at the technology and everything, and the the monitors and all that stuff. You know. Yeah, it's though. I will say it's been interesting going back through because there is a lot of stuff. There was a lot of stuff when my kids were the the boys were born as well. Um, and I think now I look at it more like, okay, I do, you don't need everything. Like I'm being sold things that they're trying to convince you this is a need and now trying to sift through and like, what do we really need? And then what's kind of a, a nice to have or you really don't. I think the biggest one that <laughs> blew me away is we had a friend who's in the Bay Area, who's in the high tech world. And she had said, oh, you guys have to get, and I'm going to get it as a gift for a rental, is this bassinet called a schnoo. And she's like, all my friends, she doesn't have kids, but she's recommending this to us. Mm. And all my friends have said, this is the thing to have. And so I was very not interested in it. It's like a Wi-Fi enabled bassinet that moves and reacts to your child's uh, uh, verbal unrest. And just what you need one more notification in your life about that. Yeah. And so I'm like, that just seems like somebody's kind of, uh, out there on a limb. And then we, we hired, a, a doula, uh, to help us through some of the birth process. And when I was talking with her, she was like, oh, they're amazing. And so at that point I'm like, all right, I have an idea of where you're at. And so we have this, this schnoo that, I can say is pretty impressive as the baby gets more and more upset, it changes both its movement and uh, uh, kind of audio and to help calm the child. And I guess, I guess there are some benefits to some technology. It's working. That's, that's interesting to hear. Now if they can apply some of that stuff to dogs as yeah. well. You know, the dog's under the bed whining probably at that point in what my house. What kind of dog so do you have? We have a two and a half year old Labradoodle. Oh, she's a sweet dog, but she has a strange behavior of diving under the bed when she doesn't want to leave the bedroom. My golden doodle, the new one, the pup, well, he's not the puppy anymore. He's almost two. He sleeps under the bed. He's 60 pounds. He manages to slide under the bed. And I like that he's there, but now he's lately I'm noticing he's on top more. And I also have a 15 year old Labradoodle. Ah. So, um, I wish you long long happy life with your with your doodle yeah they're great dogs no they she's sweet she she is not the brightest animal um but she is a very what what she does not have an intelligence she makes up for and being just a sweetheart yeah well that's i think that's almost more important because intelligence can get 
her and you in trouble for sure. 100%. So, um, but sweetness is, is always going to be wonderful. What do you um, do? You wish your children have interest in the wine business. That's something that would be important to you to pass that on. Would it be disappointing if they didn't want to do that and want to become rock stars? So it's definitely something I think more about today than I ever have. Um, having a multi-generational family business has so many challenges and you see, especially in the wine business, there certainly are some and I'm sure they have their challenges, but it there's something appealing or um, ex, you know kind of interesting to me about that. I think the other side though, if I look back at my childhood, nobody ever set expectations of what they thought I should do or where I should go. And I ended up doing what I'm doing and love what I do. And so I think for me, the last thing I'd want is somehow the business to feel like it's something they have to do. Um, my oldest son, Noah, uh, worked this summer at our packaging facility. So he literally was kind of having his Laverne and Shirley moment where he was working on a bottling line, working on the canning line, doing miscellaneous jobs. And I was super proud of him for sticking to a summer of work where, you know, a lot of his buddies coming, he was going into his freshman year of high school this fall. They weren't working and, and he wanted to earn some money. But I think it was also cool to see him be around the winery. And um, he probably hasn't spent the time around the winery that maybe other family wine businesses would. And uh, so just getting, he got a little taste of it. Um, I'd be super happy. I just want him to be happy. I want any of my kids to be happy. Uh, so w while it might be interesting, it's certainly not something I want to set the expectation or, or have them feel some kind of burden around that. I think that that just seems kind of horrible to me if, uh, I'm going into my work years and I feel this weight of having to like make dad happy by being in the business. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a hard balance for a parent, I would imagine, and, you want it to happen, but you can't, you can't push it. And you had mentioned earlier, you were originally thinking you'd be going into medicine Yep. and having the freedom not to do that was yep. very important too. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, and I, I think, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but kind of looking back at how my parents kind of managed some of those things, I think they did a great job of just encouraging me to make decisions and they may not out, they, they may not always have agreed with it and they probably didn't always share unless they really disagreed with it. They didn't share how they felt, but they allowed me to make some decisions to explore and, and learn about things that I would be passionate or excited about. And that's pretty awesome. Like to, to be that thoughtful about that without kind of guiding. And I'm sure my dad's probably pretty good at a guiding hand and you don't even sense it on your back. He taught, he's a teacher. He was a teacher too. So that, yep. That helped. Um, is there anything that you, um, because I look back on parenting and I have so many things I would do. I would, I don't know if I'd do differently, but I would hope that I would do differently if I had to, if I could do it all over again. So you have the opportunity now with older children and a young daughter. Are there any specific things that you're going to do better on with your daughter than you did with your sons? And, and if you don't feel like answering it, that's uh. fine. Um, so I think there is, and it, it's probably in the much more of the macro is both of my boys were, grew up at a point in their very young years where I was building a business. And so I think one of the things that 
I always have wanted to be a dad and my father and my mother, but my, you know, if you're just looking at your relationship with your father, set a really great example of being a dad and, and how he treated my siblings and I, um, the relationship that he had with my mom, how he showed up every day. Uh, I, always, I joke with him now. I'm like, you set the bar so damn high. I don't know like how I'm ever going to like achieve that. And then I look at my boys and I thought for a long time that I was showing up in the best way that I could. And I realized after I went through, uh, I w- got divorced from uh, their mother that I wasn't the dad that I thought I was um, in those early years. And I now know I was spending a lot of time leaning really hard into the business. The business was exciting. It was delivering a lot of things that I wanted and I wasn't there in the same way for them um, that I thought I was and kind of how I reflected upon it. And, and so I think that's something that's really important to me now, uh, both for them, but also you know, if, if you're looking and saying you have a chance to do it over, um, I don't really think about it that way, but um, there's definitely a difference today of who I want to be as a father, who I'm showing up as and trying, you know, we're always trying to find balance, you know, that's going to be different for all of us, but trying to make sure I'm dedicating more time at home and uh, being a part of what's going on there. Cause that's, it's always been important to me. And I think once you kind of realize that you're not getting there, um, trying to take the steps to change some of that. That's very cool. You are a humble man from the hour that I've, we've gotten to know you and, uh, I'll raise a can to you. Thank you. Um, I think it's, it's really, it's been a pleasure to yeah. have you here and get to know you a little bit. And so, you know, the podcast is about people, but you have a fascinating business. So we heard quite a bit about that. But one thing I've learned in this room is that, Everybody's so passionate about what they do when you, when you're trying to get to their lives and what they do, you invariably are coming right back to the business. And so you have a couple of businesses going on, one in, in, you know, in the wine business and one in the family business. So it's very cool that you, uh, how much you value both. So thank you. Appreciate your coming in. Thanks for your time. Oh, pleasure. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. 